Welcome to the Fredrickson Health Show, highlighting expert practitioners from health, fitness, injury prevention, functional medicine, and integrative medicine. If you are into upgrading and optimizing your health, this podcast is for you. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here is your host, Dr. Robert Fredrickson. All right, we are live to talk all things gut health. We have the privilege of having Dr. Mia Iyer today. She is a chiropractic physician, a holistic health practitioner whose primary interest is in gut and immune health. Um, she has worked in an integrated health clinic and has treated several hundred patients uh, who has a big focus on acupuncture, holistic yoga, and also a nutrition holistic practice. So Dr. Mia, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. Yes, and I, and I am excited to talk about this because we've been trying to do this for a while and it hasn't yeah. happened uh, as soon as we expected, um, but it's happening now. So I am super excited to pick your brain about gut health. So what got you so passionate about gut health in the first place? Well, I think that almost every practitioner, when they kind of figure out what they're passionate about or what their niche is, there's usually some kind of a personal backstory to it. Um, mine's no different. Um, I definitely have a lot of family members uh, who have gut health issues. Uh, me personally, knock on wood, I don't have any major uh, gut health issues. I do have a little bit of irritable bowel uh, symptoms here and there, but growing up, I definitely grew up with uh, my watching my dad go through some major gut health issues. So he, back in the 80s, and I was just a little girl, he had a huge um, bypass surgery, um, and he had duodenal ulcers, and uh, that pretty much changed the course of his health for the rest of his life. And he's, you know, in the late late 60s, uh, almost turning 70, 70 now, and he's still experiencing gut health problems. Um, same thing with my grandmother. Um, and so I, I grew up watching, uh, you know, people close to me suffer and not have the best quality of life. Um, and I knew that, you know, I wanted to be in the medical space. Um, so when I was trying to do a soul searching and trying to figure out what I wanted to do in the medical space, I felt like holistic medicine was where I wanted to be and really work to help people uh, with similar kind of issues uh, and where I can fill in the gap. And conventional medicine was in the right path for me. Uh, so I actually started out um, in, in a school in Toronto starting my ND career. Um, and uh, that's when I met my husband and he kind of convinced, convinced me to transfer over to Chicago. Um, and uh, I was actually dual enrolled to do both ND and a chiropractic degree. Um, but oh, I, you know, I, I switched gears. I felt like I got every, every education, all the education that I needed um, in my chiropractic degree. So I wrapped it up and um, I've always focused more on the gut health uh, and immune health, um, even in, in, uh, in school when I was in medical training. 
Um, I don't know if you're aware, I have a peer-reviewed journal that I, um, that I had published and it was focused on constipation for pediatric patients. Um, and then going into practice, um, and you know this, you know, as a musculoskeletal specialist coming out, you do see a lot of patients walking into your clinic. The first line of entry is almost always um, chronic pain, uh, pain issues, pain syndromes. Um, and if there was one thing that I asked every single one of my patients in during my intake is what is one thing that you want different in your life? And almost every single one of them was, it's not just let the pain go away. I just want to feel amazing, feel better. And these were all patients that were more in the blue collar um, blue, blue collar workers category. So they didn't have all the means and the resources to uh, dive into more of the functional testing that I, I would have wanted to do with these patients. But um, I did what I could with these patients, you know, work with them with acupuncture, as you mentioned, as a modality, um, uh, yoga for rehab, rehabilitative yoga, and a lot of holistic nutrition that just tremendously worked with a, addressing a lot of their gut health issues, because almost every single one of them had some kind of a GI complaint. Um, and majority of the patients also, those who were more in the chronically ill spectrum, who were in the autoimmune spectrum, they also had all of those gut health issues. And as we know, those in the autoimmune spectrum, if there's one thing that you would, I definitely would want to address is their gut health. So, um, you know, starting with gut health and of course, combining it with a lot of the inflammation, which translates into immune health, um, those two kind of bridged together and became my area of interest. Um, and I focused a lot of that in my practice. Wow. So I want to go through a few things here because you said that you, when a chiropractic patient, like a normal pain patient came in mm -hmm. from the back pain, you actually looked at the gut. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you, you look at a lot of the, um, uh, the inter, inter, uh, interplay and the overlap between gut health and uh, the neuromusculoskeletal health as well. So um, just to give you a very simple example, patients who come in with, um, let's say, a surgery and they have scar tissues. Um, so one of the patients that I saw who had um, a scar tissue in their abdomen, they definitely had symptoms in gut health uh, leading to obstructive constipation. So a lot of the musculoskeletal issues that I saw definitely had overlap with uh, gut health uh, issues as well. Um, so, you know, and these are also patients who are chronically inflamed. They were on uh, different kinds of medications, almost every single one of them, uh, you know, proton pump inhibitors, uh, you name it. There was always a link to how can we optimize gut health in order for them to actually get rid of their pain and start working their way to optimal health. Wow. I, that is so insightful because when a you know, when a patient comes in and their low back hurts or they sprain their ankle um, and you obviously are going to treat that ankle get them better, you know, get them on a rehab plan. And they start asking them gut health questions that patient's like, hey, I'm here for my back. I'm here for my neck. Mm -hmm. What does mm -hmm. this have to do mm -hmm. with my mm -hmm. pain? And it's so crazy that you mentioned that because I did that with almost all of my patients is I was the weird doctor who would always ask them, um, how are your poops? Um, how, how are your bowel movements? What are, what is it that you eat? And initially, I mean, these are not conversations that patients typically have with their 
own uh, you know, medical doctors because it's something that they're not comfortable talking about. It's embarrassing for them. But I was one of those people who always created that space to um, you know, uh, let them talk about things that they're uncomfortable talking about. And what I found was it's not just the sexy stuff that we see um, you know, that, that you normally uh, are heavily talked about in functional medicine space, such as SIBO or leaky gut. These what, what is SIBO, are, Doc? What, what, <laughs> what did you say? What, what is SIBO for anyone who is not familiar with that term? Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We can talk about that a little bit in, in greater detail later, but what I was trying to say is you know, these are not the sexy stuff that you see in the functional medicine space. I actually had patients who talked to me about hemorrhoids, um, internal hemorrhoids and external hemorrhoids. They started talking to me about anal fissures um, and they started talking about, about anal accesses. So these are all things that, you know, uh, you probably don't see too much in the functional medicine space, but this is all the these less sexy things that I definitely uh, saw in clinic. And, you know, my, my direction almost always kind of took me towards looking into the gut health and optimizing their uh, patient's gut health and how much of just working on gut um, really uh, contributed to overall well-being. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just, so crazy and and almost every single one of the patients it, they would always have a plan to optimize their gut health for sure so i'm so glad you're on today because we always hear about we know the gut is important we know it's 70 to 80 percent of the immune system uh we know we should, we should be eating foods but maybe we don't know the right type of foods or the right type of probiotics and so it sounds like you took gut health to the next level with the ways that you, you know, treated your patients, the way that you asked them questions in the history and exam. Um, can you go over kind of how that process might differ from, you know, maybe a conventional medicine model versus the functional medicine model for looking at gut health in particular? Right, right. So let's just kind of put it more into context and then talk about uh, something that's very commonly talked about, especially when it comes to gut health and one of the one of the conditions that comes to my mind is irritable bowel syndrome, right? Uh, almost everybody has heard about irritable bowel syndrome. It's like one of those umbrella diagnoses that doctors just put um, or give their patients or categorize their patients because they just don't know where exactly to target them, right? So typically it takes about three years for a patient to actually get um, a diagnosis such as irritable bowel syndrome. Patients are, um, you know, moving door to door, seeing so many different doctors, trying to figure out their problem. And um, eventually they come, come to the conclusion that, hey, all of your gut symptoms or the symptoms that you're seeing, such as constipation, such as bloating or gas, or, um, you know, whether it's uh, diarrhea, so all, or even migraines um, and, and some kind of skin um, symptoms to go with it, um, you know, you just start to kind of umbrella these symptoms and then put, put it into a broad term uh, diagnosis such as IBS, right? So what, what I, in my opinion, and, and 
a lot of the uh, holistic medicine doctors would agree with me is that a IBS is such a broad term it doesn't really mean anything. A lot of the symptoms that you know these patients have definitely overlaps with so many other issues. Um, and case in point is SIBO, right? So IBS and SIBO definitely have so many uh, symptoms that are overlapping. So. In terms of like having that diagnosed in a conventional medical space, so a patient coming in, they might have all those conventional lab testing done or diagnostic testing done, could be a colonoscopy, could be an endoscopy, maybe even doing uh, having some uh, barium enema imaging done uh, to figure out what's happening. And um, once you don't really have any definitive objective data, uh, they just kind of get put under the irritable bowel syndrome category, right? So, um, and then based off of that, the treatment plan is almost always matching those symptoms to um, a pharmaceutical intervention. So whether it's diarrhea, put them on laxative, if there's like a bacterial overgrowth, maybe put them on antibiotics. Um, rifaximin is one thing that is very commonly prescribed, especially for uh, those SIBO patients who need um, the, um, you know, the antibiotic treatment. Um, of course, if they have constipation, doctors just put them on antispasmodics um, and, or, you know, just a, a slew of pharmaceutical intervention to, interventions to just match the symptoms, right? So, but if you were to like take that and translate that more into a holistic healthcare space or more into a functional medicine space, you wanna really take a look at those symptoms and identify where, where these symptoms are coming from, what do these symptoms mean, and how can we navigate through that with the history of the patient and figure out what exactly is happening. So we have a targeted plan to know which direction to go in terms of providing a treatment plan or putting together a supplement prescription or a treatment plan. Right, so um, one of the things that I would look at is start with something very simple. Um, if, if the patients don't have any means to, or resources to do more of those expensive functional testing, uh, look at the diet. So start with identifying uh, if there are any food sensitivities, intolerances, maybe even allergies, and start with identifying those first and then slowly educate them on how to wean off of those triggering foods and then incorporate more wholesome nourishing foods that's going to help mitigate their symptoms, get rid of their symptoms, and of course, help iron out those um, symptoms that they're having so that they can work more towards having a um, better quality of life. So that's what, you know, we're kind of trying to help our patients drive them there in that direction. Awesome. So, so for patients that are, you're looking to implement some super simple, you know, dietary recommendations, do you recommend a food diary? Do you recommend that patients record the foods that maybe are irritable? Because as people, we forget foods that make us ill. Like we still think, oh, you know, it's been a while since I had gluten or pizza. And this time it's not going to be as bad as the last time, which is a week ago. So then we just indulge and then we feel bad the next day. And then it's like the definition of insanity is try repeating the same thing over and over again and getting the exact same result. So do you, how do you implement food changes? Do you use objective data? Like a food yeah, diet? that's that is a great question because food um, identifying food sensitivities, food intolerances, um, are definitely very challenging. So one of the gold standards that um, is done to identify triggers uh, from foods, especially, are 
uh, elimination diets, right? So a simple plan um, is to eight, you need to know where the starting point is. So as you mentioned, you're so right, you know, doing a diet recall, uh, going over what the patient's typical diet is, and then from there, guiding them to into uh, following an elimination diet so that they're able to get rid of those commonly triggering foods. Um, and typically this is done for about two, two to three weeks. And then after they complete the elimination uh, protocol, they start reintroducing the, the foods. So uh, re reintroducing them at least two to three days apart to see where they're at and if their if their um, sip, uh, body does not you know kind of reproduce those symptoms again. Um, so this is a very simple way um, and if, uh, inexpensive. Obviously, they don't have to. Uh, really indulge in any major uh, diagnostic testing or uh, specialty testing. It's a simple elimination diet that they can use um, and leverage to figure out what their uh, triggers are. Um, and, you know, uh, even, even if you were to go in the direction of getting testing done, uh, the elimination diet is still the gold standard to figure out food triggers and, and guiding patients to go towards the direction of um, you know, getting rid of those um, uh, food sensitivities and um, going in the direction of bettering their IBS symptoms. Okay, so for the elimination for the elimination diet, do you have patients take out one major allergen like gluten for a week, then the next week dairy? How does that process work with the allergen? That's a good question because there's so many different line of uh, lines of thought in the industry because some some protocols it depends on the patient in my opinion and what they're comfortable with uh, you can always do a rotation based um, elimination diet where you just work with one allergen at a time um, and there are elimination protocols where you can just you know take a um, uh, an entire bunch of uh, triggers that you just want to eliminate from their diet just take them out cold turkey and then you know, uh, reintroduce them one at a time. Um, so there are different ways of going about doing this. So it, I think it all comes down to the comfort level of the patient, what's right for the patient and what's gonna work for them and what's gonna be sustainable for them. Um, so I, I, in my opinion, I don't think there's a, like a, a solid answer to that, but I would just say, um, I think the safer way to do it is doing it in a rotation basis, start with one allergen at a time instead of just eliminating all allergens at the same time, because that can be very taxing for the patient. And I've seen, I've seen patients fail um, to when they're doing a complete elimination protocol. Okay. And so on the topic of food triggers, what are the most common uh, food triggers that are um, detrimental to gut health? Right, so obviously the two main things are going to be gluten and dairy, right? So um, you know everything about that you read about gluten and uh, what the industry experts are saying um, that it is one protein that everybody should avoid in their diet definitely is gluten because it definitely has a, a systemic inflammatory effect. Um, so many years ago, we had um, one of the cutting edge research that came out uh, how gluten actually increases zonulin levels in the body, uh, which actually triggers um, the uh, intestinal barrier, uh, the gut barrier uh, to become more leaky where the tight junctions start to open up. 
um, and giving in more room for bigger um, food particles, proteins to, uh, you know, kind of uh, permeate through the gut barrier and start to interact with the, uh, with the immune system. So that is the definition of leaky gut right there, right? So gluten definitely has a huge part of it. And of course, once in the systemic circulation, it can obviously travel to different areas in the body. Um, definitely, you know, it can cause neuroinflammation, of course, and different other areas where it starts to trigger, um, you know, uh, immune system inflammatory response. And, um, trigger autoimmune conditions um, uh, as well. So uh, definitely gluten is one of those major triggers that when it comes to gut health is uh, recommended to avoid. And next to gluten, um, it would, I would have to say dairy because um, dairy, dairy also, I feel like what I've read through the literature is number one, um, there's a line of thought that says, hey, um, what the nutrients that dairy offers um, is important and it should not be ignored. Um, you know, things like uh, the proteins that, um, that you get from raw milk um, and, uh, you know, all of the enzymes and things that you uh, really need to promote good gut health because I have a lot of doctors who actually promote the use of raw milk in, in their clinical practice. However, if you look at um, milk in general, there are two things that are of main concern. One is the sugar component of it. The next is the protein component of it. Um, when it comes to the sugar component of it, it's obviously we're talking about lactose here, right? And a lot of people definitely develop lacto uh, lactose intolerance because they don't have the enzyme to start breaking it down. Uh, when you're young and you're little and you're drinking mom's milk, you definitely have that lacta uh, lactase enzyme that are passed on to you from your mother through breast milk. So you're, you have um, a better... Uh, capacity to digest um, those uh, milk sugars. But as you grow older, your, your ability to have uh, the amount of enzymes that you have in your body starts to deteriorate and reduce. So you start to have or build a lactose intolerance. That's one thing. And second is the proteins, right? The two main proteins that we're talking about here are casein and whey. Especially with casein, uh, from a molecular, molecular structure standpoint, it's actually very very similar to gluten. So the kind of reaction that it can, uh, it can initiate in the body are very similar to what gluten does in the body too. So those are two main triggers when it comes to gut health. Um, so if you're anybody who has those gut, uh, uh, gut health symptoms, they would want to start by either you know, eliminating these two main triggers to see if they start to get better. Wow, that was amazing. So insightful. So yes, before, you know, maybe five years ago, everyone, every doctor I talked to is like leaky gut is a made up term, kind of like adrenal fatigue, but Dr. Fasano has really led the way into okay. intestinal permeability research, just like you said. So there are so many articles that you can Google on PubMed right now to show exactly what you just said. And what I didn't know, what you what what I found interesting is that casein you said mimics gluten. So is that a yes. molecular mimicry uh, cell, correct. you know, signaling sequence? Okay, Cor cool. correct, correct. So that is that is kind of the pathway to autoimmunity, right? So um, 
just touching up on uh, gluten, um, sorry, uh, touching up on uh, molecular mimicry or cross-reactivity, which can be used synonymously. Um, these molecules, uh, what happens is they start to resemble body's own tissue. So let's say your innate immune system really tags these antigens um, as foreign. And uh, every time these are introduced into the body, the immune system reacts and starts to um, try to get rid of them, right? That's the whole point of the immune system is to keep you protected. Uh, but these molecular structures, some of them actually are very similar to the body's own uh, tissues. So an example would be um, thyroid tissue. So when gluten gets into the circulation, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, go up to the thyroid. It's just when the, uh, the adaptive immune system starts to develop that memory that this particular molecular structure is deemed foreign. And then it also identifies the thyroid tissue to have very similar molecular uh, structure. It starts to attack uh, the thyroid tissue. So there you have it. You have the body's own immune system attacking its own tissues, the body's own tissues, starting that, uh, triggering that autoimmune process. Same thing with casein, right? So that is more cross-reactivity. You've got gluten, and then you've got casein, which are very similar in terms of molecular structure. So the immune system definitely reacts the same way. So for anyone listening, you didn't already know, gut health is related to autoimmunity. So thank you for explaining that. So, so what if you're on a, you're, you're feeling good and maybe you have an autoimmune disease and, and you go out one day and you have gluten or you have pizza and you have both of them in one meal. Is that going to damage the gut right there? Um, what are your thoughts on a cheat meal? So um, this is where, like, you know, I think I might need to dig a little bit deeper into IgM antibodies or IgG antibodies um, starting to have a reaction versus IgE, right? IgE is those definition of food allergies. You will know right away uh, when you have, um, when you kind of ingest an allergic item. So say peanuts, tree nuts. Uh, anaphylactic, right? Yeah. Exactly. You would have an anaphylactic reaction. Um, but IgG, however, you don't necessarily feel it right away, unless you have um, an allergic reaction, like uh, if you have celiacs, right? So that's different when it comes to food sensitivities with, with gluten. Um, you can have um, the reaction that doesn't start maybe a couple of days the next day or even three days uh, down the road after ingesting it. Um, so, I mean, if you do have gut issues, my number one um, probably tip would be to try to avoid gluten and dairy and see what happens. Um, and then maybe reintroduce it after maybe 21 days of uh, removing it from the diet and see how your body reacts and wait maybe three days to see if you have any reaction. And if you don't, maybe try it back again and see if, if you have reactions again. And if you do, then you might have to eliminate it for a longer period of time before you reintroduce it again. Because we know that IgG, the um, antibody that is responsible for these food sensitivities, it has a half-life of about 21 to 23 days, right? So in order for it to keep reducing um, and uh, completely not have that reaction toward your food, it takes that much time to have it cleared out of the system. Awesome. Okay. So 
how does inflammation in the gut re relate to inflammation in the systemic circulation or the whole body? How does inflammation in the gut relate to inflammation? In yeah, so I think this is more of the chicken and the egg kind of question because I feel like gut health affects other parts of the body and other parts of the body also affects gut health, right? So you have so many different axes in, the, in, this, in our um in our system. So you can talk about the gut brain axis, gut thyroid axis, um, gut skin axis, right? So I feel like everything is kind of interconnected. So you can't say one thing starts the other and the other thing kind of, um, you know, bleeds into the other system in the body, right? So I think they're all interconnected. But one thing is for sure is if you start with the gut and healing the gut, it starts to affect and kind of um, enhance the health of other areas in the body. So whether it's the gut brain axis, if you're, you have a thyroid issue, or if you have a hormonal issue, starting with the gut is almost always, um, the best thing to go if you don't know where to start. So if you have chronic pain and with all the knowledge that you just shared that IgG, um, antibodies take 21 to 23 days, uh, or they have that long of a half-life. So you might actually have to stay to a diet uh, plan a lot longer than you might think, right? So you Correct. think they yeah. are getting better right away. Oh, this injury is never going to heal. You know, and they start yeah. to end is near. And sometimes if you have like a very severe uh, autoimmune condition or a severe chronic inflammatory condition, it can take anywhere from six months to a year to actually completely clear that out uh, of the system. So it takes a lot longer than just 21 to 23 days sometimes, depending on where you are in your health spectrum. Okay. So we always hear about good gut health. So can you just explain like what, what is good health? What would a person who has good gut health, what would that look like? And what would someone who has bad gut health, what would that look like? Yeah. So, um, I think if you think of it, think of your gut as a garden, right? So you're, you're feeding it all the good stuff, you're watering it, you're uh, giving it all the manure that it needs so that it flowers and the roots are all strong. Um, just, just kind of throw a, throwing in an analogy here. So you're basically eating all the right foods, you're nourishing the gut and making sure that the microbiome is thriving and healthy. Um, you basically are, you have, uh, you know, a lot of energy, you're not feeling that bloat after you eat, you don't have any heavy feelings, heavy um, uh, feeling after you eat, like, you know, when sometimes after you eat, it just feels like everything is just sitting low. Um, that's a common thing that patients almost always talk to me about when they have very poor gut health. Um, and, um, you know, you're, if you're a woman, your menstrual cycles are all normal. Your bowel movements are great and it's all well-timed. So you just, you can see clearly and think clearly. That's another thing that patients tell me. So, um, and, you know, just to translate into more medical terms, you're just not going to have those icky gross symptoms, um, such as bloating, such as, you know, um, gas constipation, none of the hormonal imbalances that you're going to have stress and anxiety or panic attacks, even skin issues to go with it. So you're just going to be in more of a balance um, compared to the one who has a, a, their gut health impaired are going to have all of those symptoms, starting with headaches, brain fog, um, skin issues, acne is a huge one, or even like, you know, itching and hives, uh, in, in your body. Um, some autoimmune type of symptoms to go with it. And of course, all of the typical gut symptoms that you always hear about, um, you know, bloating, gas, 
constipation. <laughs> so, yeah. <clears throat> that, was, that was amazing and very insightful again, because when I think of, when I used to think of uh, what good gut health is, it was, hey, are you having normal bowel movements, right? Uh, if that's off, then you probably have some bad gut health. If you're having bloating, gas, cramping, those are all signs of gut health. But what you said, you said that, but what you also said was brain health, anxiety, skin health. How, did that, how does that relate to gut health? Yeah, so uh, we talk about a lot about stress and anxiety and how that really plays into gut health, right? So our brain health, um, especially when you're really stressed out, we have certain um, hormones that are released from the brain that really starts to affect and tap into um, gut health. So to give you more of a detailed answer to go into that. So when you're stressed out, your brain starts to release from the hypothalamal pituitary axis. You, everybody might have heard about the HPA axis, right? <laughs> so, from the, so yeah, tell us what that is. So from, so you have several, uh, areas in the brain, which are connected. So you have the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and then the adrenal glands, which are all connected through a hormonal um, system. So from the brain, you have a hormone that's released called um, CRH, the corticotropin hormone. Um, the corticotropin hormone triggers your pituitary to release um, uh, adrenocorticotropin hormone, right? Which starts to trigger that cortisol cascade. So when you have, when you're a high stress, uh, what happens is these hormonal release cascades starts to actually also trigger the gut. So to, act, uh, to increase its motility and starts to spasm, increasing the peristalsis in the gut. So sometimes when you are really stressed out, you often hear people say, I do get loose stools. I have to immediately run to the bathroom. Um, I almost you know, uh, I, I, I couldn't even wait to, uh, to get to the bathroom because I was so stressed out. Um, and you have that bloat symptoms that's happening off. So either you're, you have that motility issue going on or you have that um, lack of motility where um, patients are stuck in the constipation state. So stress definitely plays a huge role in how your gut functions and how that hormonal system, the HPA axis function, how that bleeds into your gut function as well. So really keeping uh, your stress levels in check can really affect and enhance um, your gut health as well. And then same thing vice versa. So when you're trying to enhance gut health, you really have to factor in how a patient uh, manages their stress levels because they go hand in hand. Okay, so I think this is a good segue into how yoga relates to proper gut health. And you have some amazing videos on Instagram of you doing yoga, but you also relate it to gut health. Can you walk us through um, how they relate? Absolutely. So the number one thing is obviously trying to create that mind-body connection, right? We want to incorporate that, uh, the breathing and connect, connecting the breath work to movement. Um, so ideally, why yoga and um, why do I uh, you know, promote it so much is mainly because it's a low impact exercise and it really does make that mind-body connection. So I don't know if you've ever taken a yoga class in a studio. If you have, you'll know um, it, it really tunes you in. 
Um, and a good, good instructor will put you through a class that just completely makes you forget about everything else. And it's just you, your breath work, and um, you know, the movement that you do on your mat. But more than that, it is a low impact exercise. So you're not really stressing the body as you move, right? You get a good workout, but at the same time, you're also not just moving in the sagittal plane or the coronal plane. You're also moving in the transverse. So you're really mixing so many different movements that just uh, incorporates all the different planes of motion, movement. And um, I like to call that more of a mechanical milk. So you're twisting and you're turning and you're really uh, incorporating that mechanical milking of, of your abdomen that really taps into uh, enhancing the function of your gut, your liver, um, everything. And it just helps you get into that calm, uh, rest, digest phase and um, overall helps you with um, enhancing your gut health. And I've seen this uh, so much in practice that, you know, patients would always say like, I'm so calm after class. Um, I had such a great night's sleep. I was not stressing about anything. I, and again, these are anecdotal data, but the, there are, there's just so much research that goes into how um, yoga and meditation has really helped uh, people um, you know, uh, come out of anxiety and depression even better than medications like, you know, antidepressants and opioids and, and things, uh, things of that nature. So um, there's definite data there. That's one thing. And second is I'm actually um, uh, curious to see how this would actually uh, affect uh, objective markers. I haven't actually come across any studies. And I was recently just talking to one of my good friends, um, she's, she's a doctor too, and she uh, works with, um, uh, with a lot of research um, MDs. And we were actually coining uh, to combine a yoga practice with uh, objective lab markers like um, a comprehensive metabolic profile to see how that affects um, uh, the objective markers. But it'll be very interesting to see how that impacts uh, gut health. So. Yeah, I think I've seen it um, enough in practice. Um, and we also understand how much like high intensity workouts um, affect uh, gut health and it induces intestinal permeability. There's, there's data on that. Whoa, whoa, so, whoa. go back. Are you, are you trying to tell me that CrossFit and high intensity training, like training for a triathlon can actually be damaging my gut? I am not saying that. I'm just saying that this is what I've read in data. I think that there's space for um, so many different kinds of exercises. I'm not saying that there's only one type of exercise a person should follow. If I were to say uh, you should only do yoga, uh, I would be I would be a hypocrite because I I do weightlifting in the gym too. I did Pilates. What I'm saying is, um, you know, incorporating yoga into your workout routines, um, you know, every now and then really does help you with creating that mind-body uh, connection and building that um, gut, gut health, gut integrity, uh, but in a much more safer way. No, I, that's, that's, that's awesome. I was just kidding because when I learned that research, I think you actually taught me that um, because High intensity exercise we think is great for everything, but too much of anything can cause damage later on. And so there was a really interesting study. I believe you shared it with me and it just showed that, hey, high intensity interval training actually led to gut permeability issues and they did it on lab testing and markers. So just keeping balance is, is key. So if you're into that, like I am, um, so I do yoga, you know, to balance things out maybe once a week. 
Um, whereas mm-hmm. who likes that more, they might do yoga and balance it with more high intensity interval work. But, um, you know, it's, it, and, 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 and sorry but to cut you off there. I'm just saying it doesn't have to be yoga. You can also do Pilates. Pilates is so great for, um, you know, so much core strength, core building that, you know, Pilates just offers. It's incredible. It's, it's an incredibly difficult workout. And I feel, um, and I'm kicking myself because I didn't get into it um, sooner, but I just recently started incorporating Pilates in my workout routines. And it, we're, we're talking about low impact exercises that really is going to help you make that mind-body connection, the breath work, and uh, doing some focused mobility work. That's another uh, way to look at it too. So really, um, that's what I'm, I'm trying to get at, the, the low impact uh, workouts that helps promote gut health while at the same time um, helping you get 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 a workout and keep you moving. So so many people think of uh, probiotics being amazing for gut health, but it's not the only thing because Dr. Mia is saying work out, do Pilates, do something low, low impact like yoga to get everything balanced, get your parasympathetic nervous system um, upregulated because we're so sympathetic dominant in our high high stress high-paced lifestyles, especially during the COVID era where stress is on hyperdrive. So I love how you make the connection. I would love to see maybe if we could do like a stool analysis, like before and afters of just doing yoga or Pilates only and seeing if we can see like the microbiome change. That would would be be amazing. That would be so, that would be so great. (laughs) You just, you just planted some ideas in my head. So if you do that on a few patients, let me know. That'd be amazing to see. I will. I know, but then, then it's also, it's like, well, you know, you're going to do your gut health protocols with, I'm sure you have your own, but probiotics, gut health, healing nutrients, et cetera. So it'd be hard to maybe take those out and just do yoga and see what happens. Maybe it'd be yeah. useful. So I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So um, but when we first started the talk, uh, for pe- anyone who didn't know that you did a lot of research um, before you started to go into practice, right? And so you had a paper, a peer review paper on adolescence and gut health. Could you share any details on that? Not adolescents and pediatric patients. Okay. So these were, um, uh, it was a case series that I did. And um, even in practice, I actually had a few research articles that I started working on, but uh, living the clinical life is not easy. <laughs> and I just didn't have the time to uh, pursue further into it. But I've always been interested in research and uh, uh, doing some published work. But the first one that I did was um, I worked on uh, two pediatric patients who had constipation and had some um, movement impairments. So when you look at the uh, a child's first year of, of their life, you have several important uh, motor milestones, right? So from a supine life, they turn over and become prone. So that is typically happens within three months. And the babies, when they came to see me, they were right around that mark. Chronologically, they were premature babies, but chronologically, they were ready to turn, but they weren't turning because they, they couldn't. Uh, they had, uh, um, I don't know if you read the paper, but uh, they had um, abdominal surgeries they had constipation issues. And of course, they just couldn't bring their leg over to the other side um, and then flip over. So there's substantial hip uh, strength, core strength, and shoulder strength that goes with it uh, that helps them flip over to the current three-month position. So um, 
what what I worked on with these patients was a adjustment. There's a lot of, um, of data that came about that showed how much that helps with their movement and also with their gut health, their issues. I also did soft tissue mobilization or scar tissue mobilization with them uh, to help break apart those um, adhesions in their scar tissue. That's the second thing. And the third is um, I worked on them with their um, core strength and um, I performed a procedure, a treatment protocol uh, called dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. That's a mouthful, but it's basically a rehab protocol that helps them with making that motor connection um, and uh, helping them move better. Um, and that's, um, that's what the paper is all about. It was a very successful case. Uh, which is why I thought it was very interesting to actually write about it. Um, so yeah, <laughs> there it is. They're, um, those kids, um, I know them very well. So um, they've grown up to be uh, really healthy boys. Um, they're thriving. So that is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Of um, course. Wow, we're gonna have to do a round two because there are some questions that I wanna ask. They're probably not gonna get to cover today. But what I do wanna ask is this so it might not be gut health related but if you could put a sentence or two on a billboard that mm -hmm. would be there for forever and everyone would see and it'd be something health related what would you want people to to do for their health and what, what would you want people to know that they might not know currently ah, um i would say um heal the hole in the middle and heal yourself <laughs> so you look huh they say it one more time Yes. So heal the hole in the middle and heal your entire body. Love it. <laughs> so for those who might not understand what that means, so you're pretty much, I had a professor who joke, who joke, always joked saying that human beings are donuts, uh, a big donut with a hole in the middle. So you have two orifices, uh, one, in, one for the input, the other one for the output. So you're technically a hole in the middle. Uh, you're a donut. So heal the gut, i.e. heal the hole in the middle your entire body so that would be my thing that i would put on a on a billboard <laughs> that is so that is so appropriate for the podcast today <laughs> i love that <laughs> okay so um so let's say you're on it you're you're trapped on or you're going to a desert island and you know that you're going to be there for a very very long time what health related um tool or supplements or whatever you think would be the most benefit to you on that island would you bring and why? I gotta tell you, I hate these kind of questions. <laughs> They're so hard to answer because like if there's only one thing that I could take with me. Um, does it have to be a dietary supplement? What are we talking about here? It can be anything that you would have the most benefit to your health um, that you would not want to have with be without for a long period of time. I would have to say turmeric. Turmeric. Okay, explain turmeric. that for us. Well, I grew up with turmeric. Um, it's been part of my diet since forever. Um, and uh, the research on turmeric is just exploding. Everybody just understands how much of an anti-inflammatory superstar it is. Um, there's so much research on um, turmeric and gut health and how it impacts the gut microbiome, right? Um, and how it also can be targeted for so many different things in the body. So if I were to be um, stranded in an island with a health food, it would have to be turmeric. 
I love that. So we're gonna have to do a podcast on just like supplements for gut health because this could be another hour long conversation. So I would agree with that. Yes. Awesome. Well, this has been an amazing hour with you, Dr. Mia. Uh, for anyone listening, where can they follow your work? Where can they uh, follow follow you on social media? Where can they find you? Yeah, um, you can find me at on Instagram at on the well by Dr. Mia. Um, so that's my Instagram handle. Um, I also have a website called www.onthewell.com. Although I'm still in the process of building that website up, so <laughs> it's taking the tedious and a painstakingly long process. But I'm I'm in the works of building it up. So those two are the two main spots. Awesome. Well, Dr. Mia, it's been a pleasure and honor speaking with you today all about gut health. I appreciate all of your knowledge and your insights and we'll have to do it again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the Fredrickson Health Show. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, leave us a rating and review. Follow us on social media and subscribe to our email newsletter for more information.